Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 109. Today's episode is all about how to build good habits and break bad ones. Somewhere between 40 to 50% of our daily behaviors are non-conscious automatic habits. Just to connect the dots here, so I mentioned earlier, we got those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. So the four laws of behavior change, there's one for each stage. And so make it obvious is really about making the cues of your good habits obvious or making the moment of action more obvious. So it's about that starting phase. Many people think they lack motivation, but what they really lack is clarity. So implementation intentions and habit stacking are ways to get over that. There are ways of making that habit, that moment of action more obvious so that it doesn't pass you by. And uh, you don't have this like vague notion of, oh, uh, it'll just be better this time or I'll act differently or I'll try harder, which, you know, like those are all fine, worthy goals, but they're very vague and they don't give you a specific place to insert that habit into your life. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Okay, guys, real talk. It has been quite some time since I've asked for a review on Apple Podcasts app, and I have to tell you that those are so important to the growth of this show. So if Mind Love has been integral in your life, if it's been helpful for you, if it's something that you love or you listen to on a regular basis, if you wouldn't mind going to the podcast app on Apple, on your iPhone, on your desktop, whatever it takes, and leave a five-star review, it would mean the world to me. Hi friends and wild minds. Want to know something crazy? They say by the time you're 35, you're basically just a series of habits. Habits of behavior, obviously. Habits of thought, habits of emotions. And you might be thinking, wait, Melissa, I thought that habits were only the things that I do over and over again, like biting my nails or checking my phone 342 times per day. Yeah, those are habits, but habits are not just about behaviors. They actually include your thoughts and your emotions, too. So if it seems like you always have negative thoughts looping in your head and you just can't get on that positivity train, that's because you haven't checked your thought habits, meaning that you haven't yet disrupted your current thought patterns and consciously created new ones. And so what about emotions? How can emotions be habits? Well, a great example of this is if you snap too easily. Do small arguments with your partner usually end up with you totally blowing it up? Or do you allow yourself to wallow in self-pity? Part of depression can actually even be an emotional habit. Yeah, there's a chemical imbalance too, but there are things that you can actively do to stop that pattern and start shifting your thoughts and feelings to something that you actually want your life to consist of. This is something that I know very intimately, and understanding this actually really helped me out of the darkest times of my life. Thoughts and emotions aside, I am definitely a creature of habit. I've had like all the bad habits. The addictions I suffered from all started as habits. 
But man, there's something about the things that just aren't good for me that I've always wanted to do over and over again. Nail biting, Netflix, candy, too much social media, all the things. Growing up, I always felt like I had to be really careful whenever I loved anything because I'd just take it to a whole new level. Example, Haribo Gold Bears. They're not vegan, so I don't eat them anymore, but they were my favorite gummy bears. So I just started buying them in five-pound bags. I had to, like, import them from Canada because, obviously. (laughs) Or wine. I never really identified with having a drinking problem, except maybe in college, although back then I wasn't identifying with it. But looking back, probably had one. But, I mean, didn't we all? But I just got in the habit of having wine while making dinner. And then I associated wine with a fun girl's night out or a nightcap or coziness or movies. And suddenly I was connecting wine with all the things that I liked. So then I was tying this behavior with other behaviors, which made them even harder to break. So understanding how to break bad habits and build positive ones became super important, not just for my own success, but for my own survival. And I'm really excited because today we have the author of the best book I have ever read on habits. And I have read a lot. This book has thousands of reviews on Amazon and all five stars. Not four and a half, five. That is rare, y'all. Our guest today is James Clear, author of the best-selling book, Atomic Habits. And he's one of the world's leading experts on habit formation. Today, he's going to teach us practical strategies that will teach you exactly how to form good habits, break bad ones, and master those tiny little behaviors that lead to remarkable results. So three key things we will learn are what's actually happening in the brain when a habit is formed, why self-control seems so difficult, and simple steps you can take to start building the habits needed to become the best version of you. Before we dive in, I want to make sure you know about the Morning Mind Love. It's the easiest way to start each day with a little reminder about how magical you really are. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start the day, or that the message that just came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. You'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided affirmation meditation to align your subconscious with your highest self, and you'll get a really cool booklet of Powerless so you can start getting clear on what you want and what really makes you happy. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome James Clear to the show. Hi, good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So to start out, what originally got you so interested in how to build and break habits in the first place? Well, we're all building habits all the time, whether you're thinking about it or not. You know, if you never read Atomic Habits or never think about the topic or, you know, investigate your own, you're still going to be building them. So I had personal experience with the topic long before I started thinking about it carefully. Most notably, I probably came to habits and sort of learning about how to build them as an athlete. So I played a variety of sports growing up and then played baseball all the way through college. And at one point during my high school career, I suffered a serious injury where I was hit in the face of the baseball bat. And it took me eight, nine months to recover and get back on the field and really two or three, maybe even four years before I was back performing at a high level again. 
And through that process, I had to build a variety of small habits. Some of it was like physical therapy and then eventually training in the gym. Other aspects were just like trying to get a sense of control over my life again. So, you know, going to bed at the same hour every night or preparing for class for an hour each day or things like that. And so I practiced all those small habits, but I didn't really have a language to describe them. If you were to come up to me at that time, I would never have said like, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better today or something like that. I was just focused on kind of doing the work. And then I had this like second entry point into the topic uh, a few years later where I studied science in undergrad, mostly chemistry and physics and biology. So like the physical sciences. And then I started my own company after I got out of grad school and it just did okay. Like I didn't really know what I was doing and I kind of flopped around for a few years and I realized, oh, one of the problems is I don't know how to market anything. I don't know like why somebody would sign up to an email list or how to sell a product. And so I started reading about consumer psychology just to learn more about the business. And that naturally led me toward behavioral psychology and habit formation. And so then my kind of scientific brain got interested. And suddenly I had all of these things that I could talk about or read about that pointed back to the experiences I had as an athlete. So I had this like language now for describing what I was doing on the practice field or how I was building a fitness habit in the gym or thoughts that I could use to build a writing habit for my business. And so that's kind of actually a good description of where I see myself now. So I've been writing at jamesclear.com about habits for the last six, seven, eight years now. And Atomic Habits the, is kind of the culmination of that work and came out last year. And I see myself as like a bridge between academic research, scientific investigation about how habits work, and then the daily practice of what that actually looks like in the real world. And that's really what I'm most interested in is taking scientifically grounded ideas and applying them to our daily life and work. Yeah, the book is so awesome. I am a habit person, both in good ways and bad ways. I've had to break so many bad habits. I have a really addictive personality, but I also have thrived by my ability to create new ones. And it's interesting when I was going through your book, there's so many things that I was like, oh yeah, that's just a different way to say what I've already been saying, but I didn't necessarily know the science behind it or why it works so well. So what is actually happening in the brain when a habit is formed? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Whenever I hear that kind of feedback from readers or people who are using the ideas, I always think it's kind of affirming because basically what it means is you like through trial and error and kind of going through your life, you figured out some strategies that work for you. And then you read the book and you find one or two of them. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's that thing I do that works well. And um, so for me, that's good because like the ultimate test of whether an idea is true or not is does it work in the real world? So thank you for sharing that. All right. So your question is, how does a habit form in the brain? What's going on there? Well, you know, we can break this down in a lot of different ways. And sometimes people talk about various brain regions that are involved or other people might talk about dopamine signaling and like the neurochemicals in the brain. I think any of those descriptions are actually a little bit short-sighted or maybe a little too narrow. The truth is the body is a complex system and there are many, many factors that are involved as you're proceeding through a habit, as you're learning a habit and so on. But from a high level, we can consider each habit to sort of have four basic stages. So I describe those stages of that four-step framework in the book as cue, craving, response, and reward. Cue, craving, response, and reward. 
So as a quick example, you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies on the counter. That's a visual cue. Then that gets your attention, which is the purpose of the cue or the trigger. The next step is that you actually make some kind of prediction. And so in this case, you might see the cookies cue and then you predict, oh, those will be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And so that prediction is actually what leads to the craving. So that's the second stage. And sometimes we use the word craving to describe habits like, oh, I have a craving for a cigarette or a craving for a donut. But every action in life has some kind of prediction, some sort of motivational force or craving that motivates you to take action. And so we often feel like life is reactive. You know, people are doing things and then I respond. But actually, life is maybe more predictive. Things happen and then you predict how to act in the next moment or whether you should act on a particular opportunity, like seeing that plate of cookies and eating them. So you see the cookie cue, you predict, oh, that'll be tasty craving. The third step is the response. You walk over, pick it up and take a bite. And then finally, there's the reward, which is, oh, it is in fact, sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. Now, not every behavior in life is rewarding. Sometimes things have a consequence or sometimes they're just fairly neutral. But if a behavior is not rewarding, it's unlikely to become a habit because you don't have this positive signal in your brain that says, oh, hey, that was good. You should do that again next time. When you see a similar circumstance, you should take that same action. So the first time that you go through things, like the first time you take a bite of a pancake or the first time that you taste chocolate, it's a surprise. You don't know what to expect. And so when you have that experience, there's a spike of dopamine after the action. But essentially what's going on there in the brain is you're like marking that experience. It's like your brain is saying, hey, that was good. That was enjoyable. Remember this for next time. And so then the next time you go around and you see a pancake or you read the word pancake on a menu or you see a chocolate bar in the aisle, dopamine actually spikes before the action, not after. And so it's like that rise in desire, that rise in craving that motivates you to repeat the habit. And the tighter that habit loop gets, the more times you've gone through those four stages, the more firmly embedded the habit becomes in your mind. So there's a lot going on, but that's kind of the rough picture of those four steps that sort of all habits and in many ways, almost every behavior goes through those four stages. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. 
He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. So I have talked about before how I have an addictive personality. And I remember one time saying like, yeah, I can get addicted to most things. And somebody almost got a little bit offended. Like, okay, don't compare your chocolate cravings to like a deep, serious addiction. Mm. But I wasn't really thinking about it that way because I've also had some pretty deep, serious addictions. So I feel <laughs> I felt like I had like the freedom to say that. But is there really a difference between deep, bad habit compared to an addiction? And what would you say that that is? Yeah, that's a good question. So first, before I answer, I should say like, I didn't write Atomic Habits to be a book on addiction. I don't consider myself an expert on addiction. So I'm not really trying to take a stance on that in the book. However, I have learned a lot about it. And it is like an adjacent related topic. And I've heard from a lot of addicts who have either read the book or have someone in their family who's dealing with an addiction. And there are quite a few strategies that are mentioned in the book that appear to be very relevant or useful for people who are dealing with those situations. But your question is, what's the difference between the two? And so this, this is a good question and actually like a little bit of a deeper question about habits in general, which is some people are like, well, what is a bad habit anyway? Like if it's bad for me, then why would I do it? And so I think it's worthwhile to distinguish what a good habit and a bad habit is. Now, technically speaking, every habit that you repeat it serves you in some way. It provides some benefit to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't repeat it again. And so sometimes people don't like the terms good and bad because they're like, well, all habits serve you. But I think we can put a little finer point on it and kind of distinguish them into two different buckets if we consider the following, which is pretty much every behavior in life produces multiple outcomes across time. And broadly speaking, we could say maybe there's like an immediate outcome and there's an ultimate outcome. And most of the time, habits that we would categorize as bad, the immediate outcome is often quite favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It tastes good. It's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep doing that for six months or a year that's unfavorable. Smoking a cigarette, same way. The immediate outcome is maybe you get to socialize with friends outside of the office, or maybe you get to curb your nicotine craving or reduce stress. It's only if you keep smoking two or five or 10 years down the line that the ultimate outcome is unfavorable. With good habits, it's often the reverse, where when you show up and do a good habit like go to the gym, after any particular workout session, like the change in your body is insignificant. You don't really see any benefit there. The scale hasn't really changed. You look the same in the mirror at the end of the night. If anything, like maybe you're sore, you know, you're like putting all this effort in and you don't really have any change to show for it. And so, the immediate outcome of good habits is often kind of unfavorable, and it's only the ultimate outcome a year or two down the line that gets you those kind of returns and rewards you were hoping for. So I think the summary we could say there is that for the cost of your good habits is in the present, the cost of your bad habits is in the future. And so I offer that as a way to distinguish what a good habit is and what a bad habit is. 
Now, within bad habits, we have this second kind of category that you're mentioning, which is, well, what about an actual addiction? How, what is the difference there between something that just doesn't pay off for me in the long run and something that's actually addictive? And I think the, the answer is that this is particularly true for actual substances. They kind of play a trick on your brain in the sense that, so just a few minutes ago, I mentioned that before an action is taken, there's this dopamine spike in the brain that like motivates you to take action. Well, when you take some kind of substance like meth or cocaine or whatever, often it artificially raises dopamine in the brain or these signals, these neurochemical signals of pleasure so that you know that it doesn't serve you, but like biologically, your brain is still getting the signal that it is serving you. And so it becomes hard to resist because you're almost like faking yourself out in that sense or the substance is faking you out. And so I think the answer to your question is with a bad habit, learning continues to happen. If you're doing something and then it no longer serves you anymore, if it is no longer rewarding, then you can change your behavior. But with an addiction, you already know that it doesn't serve you. You know it's not beneficial and yet you still can't stop yourself from doing it. So addictive behavior is like once a behavior continues despite negative consequences. And so with most habits, when you go through that feedback loop of cue, craving, response, reward, if it turns into cue, craving, response, consequence, then you still continue to learn, oh, okay, this is no longer working. I should skip this. And as an example of a non-addictive behavior, and this is more like kind of neutral, let's say you have a remote control and you're pressing the power button and the batteries are dead. Well, your habit is, oh, I always pick up the remote control and I press the power button and the TV turns on. And you might do that once and then you press the button and you keep pressing on it because it's not working anymore. But after you do it like 10 or 20 times, you're like, okay, this thing's broken and you get up and turn it on manually. And so even it's the same habit, but once it turns into, oh, that's no longer rewarding, it no longer turns on the TV, you learn and you change your behavior. But with addictions, it's very hard to change the behavior despite the negative consequences. Last thing I'll add on this, which I think is just an interesting point to consider. I like to kind of think about behaviors as sort of defaulting or leaning one way or another. And so when you mentioned like, oh, I can get addicted to just about anything. Well, that is technically true. Like you could, for example, get addicted to exercise. And there are some people who have exercise addiction. But generally speaking, there are far more people who get addicted to, say, like using meth or cocaine than they do getting addicted to exercise. And so exercise defaults more toward a productive good habit, whereas like substance abuse defaults more toward an unproductive bad habit or maybe even an addiction. And so you can sort of like categorize different behaviors that way where people are like, well, you know, what, how is too much? Like maybe I'm overdoing it with exercise. And it's like, well, maybe you are, but that's much less rare. It's much less likely. It's much more rare that that is going to become a problem than some other behavior. Yeah, I feel like I have such an interesting perspective on it because my deepest addiction was bulimia for 10 years. And so it's interesting because it's not like some chemical substance completely, but it does a lot of the same things to the brain. And it's funny that you brought up the exercise thing because just yesterday I was talking to one of my best friends about this memory I have in middle school. I had joined a Jenny Craig with my mom and I got the flu and I couldn't go do my 30 minute workout a day. And mind you, I was like 11. 
friends. So I, I had to like get parents consent to go to the gym. And mm-hmm. so I had the flu, couldn't even get up. And my mom wouldn't let me go to the gym. And I just started bawling. And I was like, wow, that's such a testament to where that like body image dysmorphia came from and how it's sort of spiraled. But it's just so interesting with food. I mean, with bulimia and with just other stupid little I'm doing air quotes around addictions. It feels very similar sometimes when you feel like you can't stop. And it's just, even when you know it's not good for you, we think so often our first default is, well, can I just have self-control around this? Can't I just stop doing it? And the amount of times I woke up, whether it's bulimia or just one of the other minor things that I had, not being able to stop when I really wanted to, or sometimes being like, yeah, I woke up this morning with so much self-control and then 5 p.m. rolls around and either binge eating or I'm like being lazy or whatever the habit that I'm trying to break is. So what is it about? Why can't we just override that behavior with self-control? Or why is self-control so hard to grasp once it's already formed its own habit loop? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. And thanks for sharing your experience. I think Man, food is such a tough one because, you know, you can live a life without cocaine or marijuana or alcohol or whatever, but like everybody has to eat. And so it's like this addiction that <laughs> you're forced to face it every day. You know? Right. Imagine um, if you were, to, you had to like, for, to live, you had to take a small line of Coke after you were like trying to wean off of it, you know, like right. that's how morning started. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I totally <laughs> feel for you there. It's like, man, that's just such a tough one. So your question is about self-control. So this is interesting. So I have a chapter in the book called The Secret to Self-Control. And one of the lessons of the research that's covered there is that people who exhibit or display high self-control and those who exhibit low self-control actually don't differ that significantly. The primary thing that is different about them is that the people who exhibit high self-control are in environments where they are tempted less frequently. And certainly there can be outliers. And if we're anytime we're talking about addiction, I worry a little bit about like maybe it is an outlier case. For example, you know, maybe someone is hypersensitive to cues, which is a thing that people have. And so like, it's possible, for example, that people who tend to have food addictions maybe are more sensitive to food cues than the average person. But generally speaking, you can imagine the typical human brain as responding to most stimuli relatively similarly. Like if you put most people in a war zone, they'll be stressed and anxious and worried. And if you put most people on a calm beach, they'll be relaxed and more chill. Similarly, if you give most people a bite of chocolate or candy, they'll think it was sugary and tasty. I mean, if you give most people a bite of broccoli or plain bread, they'll find that to be less sugary and less tasty than the chocolate bar candy bar was. And so my point is that the human brain responds to stimuli in a very similar way across people. And so you can imagine that, yeah, if most people are surrounded by an environment where there are 25 fast food restaurants within a two mile radius, they're probably going to eat more fast food. And that is true for pretty much anybody, regardless of whatever natural level of self-control they have. So the lesson that or the key takeaway that I have in that chapter is that, yes, self-control and willpower and persistence and grit are very important qualities in life. 
but the most meaningful or most effective or most rapid way to like give yourself an instant willpower boost is not to like try harder or just like berate yourself for not wanting it bad enough, but it's to design an environment where you need less self-control to design an environment where you are tempted less frequently. That's the most reliable and rapid way to increase your willpower and self-control. That makes perfect sense because since going back to food, since that's just what I have the most experience in having to deal with every single day, I don't keep certain snacks in my house. And <laughs> I talk about this a lot, but like my chocolate, I love chocolate. And I have to have my husband hide the bar and he gives me one square per day because I still want it. But if the bar is accessible, I will eat the whole thing. And so the same thing goes with any other real snack foods. I just have to keep in my house what I'm okay eating. So it makes sense also if you're trying to build a habit or when I was really actually starting my morning routine, I meditate and I journal every morning, but it's just more likely that I'm going to do it if my meditation cushion's already out with my little headphones that I like to wear and my journal's sitting right there and I don't put it away because I will do it about 50% of the time if I put it away and it's closer to like 80 or 90% if I leave it out. So what are some other ways that we can begin to, when we're really working on creating a new habit, other than designing the environment that makes it more likely that we're going to be able to follow through. Yeah. I mean, those are great examples of what I would call like priming the environment, right? Like leaving your clo gym clothes out or leaving the journal out. That's a way to prime the environment to make the next action easy. And that's kind of the core idea behind environment design. And, you know, like I'm not someone who's struggled with addiction personally, but I fall into the same things you're talking about here. When Halloween comes around, the main lesson that I've had is we should buy the candy that we give out to kids like the that day, because if we buy it the week before, <laughs> I'll eat half of the bag before Halloween arrives. And so that same thing that your exposure to cues and stimuli in the environment it can work both for you and against you. And that actually, I should mention, that actually is a truth about pretty much everything that we talk about today. The powerful thing about habits is also the dangerous thing about them, which is that they're a double-edged sword. They can either build you up or cut you down. And so all of these strategies, you know, like if you want to reduce the odds that you eat candy before Halloween, then don't buy it a week before, buy it the day of the holiday. And the same thing is true on the other side. Like when I wanted to start flossing consistently, for example, I realized that I would brush my teeth twice a day, but I would only floss every now and then because it was hidden away in a drawer in the bathroom. And so I just wouldn't remember to do it part of the time. So instead, I got this little bowl and I put it right next to my toothbrush and brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up. Now I floss like twice a day, which I'm told is excessive. So, you know, it's basically just like how prevalent is it is in the, in the environment. So your question, though, was what are some other things that you can do? So environment design is certainly a powerful one. I think a great place to start because you only need to design the environment once or that first time, and it makes the action easier every time. Another recommendation that I have is what I call the two-minute rule. So the two-minute rule says you take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So for example, you know, do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat or read 30 books a year becomes read one page. And sometimes people resist that a little bit because they're like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to like take my yoga mat out. Like I know I actually want to do the workout. So this is some kind of like mental trick. Why would I fall for it basically? And if you feel that way, I understand where you're coming from. But so I had this reader named Mitch 
I mention him in the book. He ended up losing over 100 pounds. And for the first six weeks that they went to the gym, he had this rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds silly. It seems like ridiculous. You know, it's like this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think this is like a much deeper truth about habits that we often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or expanding it from there. You need to make it the new normal first. And so often we're focused on finding the perfect business idea, the best workout program, the ideal diet plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way. And so, you know, if you don't master the art of showing up, you have no like raw material to work with. There's nothing to, to optimize. And um, you can have the best theory in the world, but if you never turn it into practice, it can't turn into anything. And the two minute rule kind of helps curtail that tendency that we have to bite off more than we can chew or theorize about the perfect way to do something rather than mastering the art of showing up and you know doing things consistently, even if it's just in a small way at the beginning. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I remember in the beginning of your book, you had recommended that people go through and basically it's a way to do an inventory of all of the habits that you have, whether good or bad. Why do you find that such a beneficial practice if you want to start to build new ones? Like, couldn't we just keep our current habits regardless of what else we're trying to build? Or why is that an integral part of the whole process? Yeah, that's a good question. So you're kind of faced with two different challenges with it, when it comes to habits. When you're building a new habit, a good habit, it's not yet automatic. You know, you have to think carefully about how to craft it and remind yourself to do it and come up with these methods for instilling it into your mind and brain and making it more automatic, practicing it consistently. But for breaking a bad habit, it's a very different situation. You're not trying to like remind yourself of it. You're already doing it automatically. And once a habit gets ingrained, once it becomes part of your daily routine, you are more or less doing it on autopilot. And so in many cases, we're performing actions without even really consciously thinking about them. We're kind of going through life on autopilot, maybe depending on what uh, study you look at, somewhere between 40 to 50% of our daily behaviors are non-conscious automatic habits. So the purpose of this task or this exercise that you mentioned is what I call the habit scorecard. And basically from the very beginning of your day, you just write down in as granular detail as you can remember each habit that you perform. So it's like I wake up, I turn off my alarm, I make my bed, I walk over to the shower, I take a shower, I go to the bathroom, I brush my teeth, et cetera, et cetera, like all the way through your day. And the point of doing this is not to judge your habits really as good or bad. It's just to make yourself aware of what's already happening. And you could, as you just asked, you, yeah, you could like let your current habits go and then just kind of like let them sit there. And most of the habits on that scorecard, you're actually not going to try to intervene or change. But it can happen that your behavior will change without you being aware of it, but it'll just happen randomly. It won't really be under your control. In order for you to have any kind of reasonable amount of control over designing your habits, over adjusting your life in some meaningful way, you need to first become aware of them. And so the process of behavior change almost always starts with awareness. We can imagine it kind of being like a circle where at the top of the circle, you become aware of the behavior that you want to change, whether it's through this habit scorecard or just noticing it some other way or somebody tells you that you keep doing this thing. So first there's awareness. The next stage is, okay, I've decided that I want to change it. So now you have to start what we could call deliberate practice where you're practicing a new routine instead but it's not automatic yet. The change has not happened. Then with practice, you gain 
fluency, skill, speed, consistency. And gradually, as you move around this circle here, the habit becomes more ingrained. And then eventually, as you're moving around, you kind of get to, oh, I've built a new habit now. Now it's more automatic. But at that point, we have to return to the top of the circle and become aware of our behavior again and ask ourselves, okay, are my current habits still serving me? Is there something here that I want to change again? And then start the process all over again. But it always starts with awareness, which is the purpose of doing that exercise. Yeah, it's so funny because I found that too. Like when I become really intentional about my day, I will often get so much more done and it's like I have so much more control over all of my life. But then a part of me always wants to be like the little devil's advocate over there where it's like, well, wouldn't it make more sense that if I allow those autopilot behaviors to continue and focus, funnel all of my efforts into whatever new I'm building? So it's so interesting that it doesn't work that way. And it's almost opposite where, no, become more intentional about almost everything. And it's like it's changing the habit of your entire mindset. Whereas when I'm letting things go throughout the day or letting myself just kind of fall into old patterns that I'm not super proud of and don't let leave me feeling energized, it'll leak into everything else. And it's hard to even build one new thing. Have you found that? Well, if a habit is serving you, then letting it run on autopilot is great. But the problem and the reason we need to kind of reflect and review and continually revisit things is, as you mentioned, we often have this like baggage of old habits that maybe served a purpose at some point, but still have continued in our lives despite not being really that useful. Or we learned a particular solution to a problem that isn't the best solution. So for example, you can consider most of your habits to be like you could even consider the role of habit to solve the problems of life with less energy or effort than you would otherwise need. So for example, you might come home from work each day and it's like 5.30 and you're exhausted. Well, one person might de-stress and decompress by playing video games for an hour. And another person might do that by smoking a cigarette. And a third person might do that by going for a run. And so all of them are sort of solving that same problem of feeling exhausted and tired and needing to relax a little bit, but they're doing it in wildly different ways with regards to how productive or how fruitful or how beneficial that habit is. And so we all have stuff like that. We all have habits like that, that we've picked up and they served a purpose and they like are technically, yeah, they're solving the problem we're facing but maybe it's not the healthiest way to do that or the most productive way to do that. I think the benefit of kind of revisiting this and becoming aware of it is that you can start to identify some of those weak points. And then maybe that's a good place to intervene and maybe insert a more healthy routine that solves the same problem. So in your book, Atomic Habits, you've broken down the process of creating a good habit into basically four parts. Make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. And so the obvious one, the first step, we've covered a couple of those becoming aware of your current habits and really designing your environment. So, you know, doing that new action starts to become more obvious in your life. What other ways are, can we make a new habit more obvious in our life? Yeah. So just to connect the dots here. So I mentioned earlier, we got those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. So the four laws of behavior change, there's one for each stage. And so make it obvious is really about making the cues of your good habits obvious or making the moment of action more obvious. So it's about the, that starting phase. So you already mentioned environment design. 
Another strategy that we can use is what scientists and researchers call an implementation intention. And so basically, you state your intention to implement a particular behavior. And usually what that looks like is you fill out a sentence that says something like, I will exercise at 5 p.m. on Monday at this gym. And so you do, it's like time, location, and date. So I will do it at this time, on this day, in this place. And there are hundreds of studies on implementation intentions. People have used them to build habits for everything from going to the polls to vote, to getting a flu shot, to exercising, to recycling more. Some people have even used them to quit smoking. So the core lesson is it sounds simple, but if you make an actually an explicit plan for when and where to implement a behavior, you're two to three times more likely to follow through. And so that can be an effective way to make it more obvious in your mind when and where to act. One thing that's been really helpful to me around implementation intentions is to also have a backup plan in case something goes awry. Because so often Mm -hmm. I feel like we'll say like, okay, well, I'm going to do this every morning. And then we fall off the bandwagon like once or twice. And we're like, well, I already lost the habit. And like, somehow think all of our effort before was a wash because we missed a few days. So do you ever do that where I call it my oh shit plan when like, okay, I (laughs) couldn't do this on this day. So what am I going to do instead? Like move the journaling activity to nighttime or something along those lines. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. It's a really great point. Having an if then plan or a failure plan or backup plan or whatever we want to call it. It's a really valuable thing to have because the truth is Everybody gets busy. Life will come for all of us. There are emergencies and things that creep in. Maybe you just have a crazy week of work, whatever it is. You got to take care of your kids, have to do something for your parents. You know, all kinds of stuff will can throw you off course. And so having a plan for that is crucial. The philosophy that I like to keep in mind, just generally speaking, is never miss twice. So you know, if I fall off course with a habit, well, I wish that hadn't happened, but never miss twice. So let me make sure the next meal is a healthy one, or I get back in the gym tomorrow morning, or I make sure that I put all my my energy toward publishing an article the next week or whatever it is, whatever the frequency or pace or habit is. And we all sort of implicitly know this, but it's almost never the first mistake that ruins you. It's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. And so the real problem isn't like missing once. It's like letting that slip up or letting that mistake turn into a new habit. And so if you can cut that off at the source by having some kind of backup plan, then, you know, you get to the end of the year and that those mistakes are just a little blip on the radar. But I think everybody will experience failure or some, you know, have their schedule upset at some point. And so having a plan for managing that, I think, is a really great idea. So I know we're definitely not going to be able to get to every single tip around the habits because the whole book is just so actionable. I read Power of Habit, which was really great as well. But this one, it's like it grounds all those concepts into a really easy thing to just start taking them and say, okay, this is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to do that. So by the way, thank you so much for putting it all together because it's been so helpful for me already. But I definitely oh, still you. I still want to touch on habit stacking though because that's another one of those that has already made a really big difference. Can you go into the details of what that is? Yeah, so habit stacking is sort of like a specialized version of the implementation intention idea that we mentioned a minute ago. 
So this was first designed by a Stanford professor named BJ Fogg, and he refers to it as anchoring because basically what you're going to do is you're going to anchor a, your new habit on top of an old one. So for example, let's say you make a cup of coffee every morning, and that's just a habit that you normally do, and you want to build a new habit of you know meditating each morning. Well, you could say, after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. And so you're anchoring or tying that meditation habit to your coffee habit. And so the, the formula that Fogg recommends is after current habit, I will new habit. So you, you kind of after I make my cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Or after I put my leftovers in the microwave to heat them up, I will do 10 burpees while I'm waiting. Or after I sit down to dinner in the evening each night, I will say one thing I'm grateful for that happened that day. And so habit stacking allows you to have a very clear place to insert that new behavior in your life. So like I mentioned a moment ago with the implementation intentions, you fill out that sentence and now it's very specific when and where to act. I know the time, I know the place, I know the location. Habit stacking is the same kind of idea, but rather than tying it to a time or location, you're going to tie it to another behavior that you do. So I know exactly when I do my meditation, it's right after I make my cup of coffee. I know exactly when I practice my gratitude habit, it's right after I sit down to the table for dinner. And what a lot of people find, or many people think they lack motivation, but what they really lack is clarity. And so implementation intentions and habit stacking are ways to get over that. There are ways of making that habit, that moment of action more obvious so that it doesn't pass you by and uh, you don't have this like vague notion of, oh, uh, it'll just be better this time or I'll act differently or I'll try harder, which, you know, like those are all fine, worthy goals, but they're very vague and they don't give you a specific place to insert that habit into your life. And so uh, habit stacking is a good way to do that. Under the section of making a habit more attractive, you have something called temptation bundling, which is pairing an action that you want to do with one that you need to do. And it sounds kind of similar to habit stacking. So how are they different? Well, so habit stacking, two separate habits, and you're linking them together. So you're kind of reminding yourself when you want to do the behavior. Temptation bundling is just one habit. But what you're going to do is you're going to layer it or add something on that is also really enjoyable to you. So habit stacking is about remembering when to do that new behavior or finding a space for it in your life. Temptation bundling is about making the new behavior more enjoyable, about pairing it with something that you really like. So, for example, the researcher who came up with the term temptation bundling is Katie Milkman. And when she was toying with this idea, she was reading the Hunger Games trilogy and she was really into the books, but she knew that she needed to be working out more often. And so the rule, the temptation bundle that she created for herself was, I'm allowed to read the book, but only if I'm on the treadmill at the gym. And so she took the thing that she needed to do running on the treadmill and paired it with something that she wanted to do reading the book. And so she made that process or that action of running more enjoyable because of that. And there are a bunch of examples of this, right? Like, you know, if uh, cooking is kind of a hassle for you, but you know, it'd be better if you made meals each night and it would be more healthy, then, you know, you could find a podcast that you really love and you're only allowed to listen to that podcast while you're cooking your own dinner. Or if you have a bunch of overdue work emails that you need to process, but you don't really want to do it, but you enjoy getting pedicures, you could allow yourself to like only get a pedicure if you're processing overdue work email. So you pair that thing that you enjoy with something that you need to do. 
I actually did that recently with wine. I was only allowed to drink wine while I was cooking my own dinner. <laughs> and mm. it was great because then I actually, there was a cutoff time and it felt more productive rather than like sitting down to watch a show. And then I used to always be trying to time my wine ending with the show ending. And then if there was more show, I'd pour more wine. And if there was more wine, I'd watch more show. <laughs> it was just this <laughs> downward spiral. So I had to do something and it worked really well. Another thing that I thought was really notable under making a habit attractive is joining a culture where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. And that is a huge difference I've seen in my own life where I've talked a lot on this show about kind of upgrading my friends in a way. I used to party a lot and now I'm like, you know, on a success path. And so I've resurrounded myself with people that are way more productive than my old people. So why is it that that is so kind of profound in how we want to create our own lives is just watching other people do it. Yeah. The social environment, we've talked about the physical environment a little bit already. The social environment is maybe the strongest factor, long-term factor in determining whether a habit remains attractive to you or not. And the punchline of this, as you just mentioned, is join a tribe or join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then you're going to want to perform the habit because it's going to be a signal that, hey, I get it. I belong. I, you know, I'm a friend of this idea too, or like I, you know, like I fit in. And the truth is if people have to choose between having the habits that they want, but being on their own and having habits that they kind of don't want or just okay, but fitting in, most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than right and by themselves. Most people would rather choose belonging over loneliness. And in many cases, the desire to belong overpowers the desire to improve. And this is one of the deepest things that all of us want. You know, we all want to belong. We all want to be accepted. We all want to have a tribe or have a group or have the support and love and affection and praise and respect of the people around us. And so we tend to avoid behaviors that prevent getting association and support and love and praise and respect. And we tend to be attracted to the habits within that particular tribe that do get reinforced and get praised and give us love and attention and respect. And so if a habit is normal in that group, then doing it, it's going to be a signal that you're going to get those things. So habits are, you know, as you mentioned, the second uh, laws to make it attractive and habits are very attractive attractive when they help you fit in and reinforce the norms of the tribe. And they're very unattractive when they cast you out and ostracize you and violate the norms of the tribe. And so it becomes really helpful, really important in the long run to find groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior, because that's one of the best ways to get it to stick. If it's not normal, if it runs against the grain of the social expectations of the group, you might be able to resist that for a little while. But man, that's really hard to do in the long run. And in many cases, it takes a good bit of courage in that sense to build a new habit because either you need the courage to go against the norms of the group in the short term, which you can possibly do in the short term, but it's very hard to do in the long run. Or more likely, you need the courage to step out and enter a new friend zone or enter a new tribe to show up at the gym for the first time or to go to the book club for the first time or to attend a conference you don't normally attend in a different industry and introduce yourself to new people. You need some element of bravery 
to branch into a new tribe so that you can be surrounded by people who have those habits that you want to become normal for yourself. Something really weird happens sometimes when I'm doing that same technique, but it almost happens in the opposite way. Example, a lot of times if I go, I'm vegan and I eat really healthy. And a lot of times when I go hang out with family members that don't eat healthy at all, it's almost like I see the stark contrast and I hold even more firm in my current lifestyle. Like something about that looks so unattractive. And the same thing used to happen to an old friend I'd have. It seemed like whenever I went to hang out with her, it was like so many of the things in her life were kind of a mess that I would feel like shot straight into productivity mode. Is there anything to that or am I just a weirdo? No, no, I think that makes sense. It's basically like the contrast is reinforcing. Yeah, my current lifestyle is really rewarding to me. This is what I want, actually. You know, like now I can see so clearly. It's almost like you are able to step outside and above your previous self and compare where you are now or the trajectory that you're on now to the trajectory that you were on previously through this example of family member who's eating unhealthy or a friend who is unproductive or unorganized. And so the contrast, I think, is very strong there. And that makes total sense to me that you would feel maybe reinvigorated to stay on your current path or your new path once you have that example. The key difference, I think, is that you're not living permanently with that family member or living permanently with that friend. And if you were surrounded by them constantly, then all of a sudden you're in a tribe where your desired behavior is not the normal behavior. And it would probably become much harder to stick to the habits if you were around them all the time than if you just see them intermittently and it uh, provides a point of contrast to reinforce the standard lifestyle that you do have. Right. That makes perfect sense. And I've totally seen that reflected in my own life where there were certain things that I thought I'd never do or was repulsed by different people doing it. And then if it's around too long, slowly but surely, it just kind of chips away at me and suddenly it's not such a big deal. (laughs) So I get that. Another tip that I found interesting. So for listeners out there, there's a lot that, again, we're not going to be able to cover, but I want to highlight some of the ones that I haven't heard quite as much. So we're going to skip over like habit streaks and things that you might have heard in a Seinfeld episode and go straight to the one that says, make doing nothing enjoyable when avoiding a bad habit, design a way to see the benefits. Can you expand on that one a little bit? So we have this whole category of habits that I think we could call habits of avoidance. So like don't watch TV or don't drink alcohol or, you know, don't spend money on Amazon for 24 hours, things like that. And the challenge of any habit of avoidance is that there isn't really any outcome. So remember, I mentioned those four stages. You've got cue, craving, response, and then finally there's a reward. Well, what is the reward of just not doing something? The reward of not buying money or not buying something on Amazon or the reward of not drinking a glass of wine the reward of not playing video games today. It's not really that behavior, that resistance is not rewarding. It just kind of, you're just left with sitting there with the craving. Oh, I feel like purchasing something or I feel like playing a video game, but I don't get to do it. And so the more effective strategy, I think, is to try to find a way to invert that a little bit or give yourself some benefit of doing nothing. So as you mentioned, to make doing nothing more rewarding. So here's an example. I have a reader who he and his wife decided that they wanted to spend less money eating out at restaurants and they should probably stay at home and cook more. 
But again, whenever you don't eat out at a restaurant, that's like, oh, we're just avoiding going out tonight, but that doesn't really feel that rewarding to us. So instead, what they did was anytime they would pass on going out to eat, they would take $50 and they put it into a savings account. They transferred over right then on the computer. And they labeled that savings account trip to Europe. And so each time that they didn't go out to eat, now suddenly they did have the positive signal of saving for the trip to Europe. And then at the end of the year, they put all that money toward the vacation. And so you can do the same kind of thing, right? It doesn't have to be a big vacation. It could be buy a leather jacket or, you know, purchase some tickets to a show or whatever it is that's rewarding to you. But the point is that by giving yourself something small that you're working toward there, and this is the crucial part, an immediate signal that you're moving toward that beneficial thing. Now, suddenly it becomes more rewarding to do nothing and ignore the less productive or less healthy option. Uh, Let me know if this is an example of that as well, because it's something that worked really well for me when I was cutting back on drinking. And I'm using drinking a lot and as an example in this episode, because for me, I had very much created wine as a habit. I don't feel like it was an addiction for me, but it was just like my little reward at the end of the night. And I had built these so many cues around it of it being like the reward for the end of the day that I was like, okay, I've got to uncouple some of these things. And so one of the ways that I did that though, was at the end of the night when I felt like I wanted the little reward of a glass of wine, I started to allow myself to buy some fancy healthy drink, like a turmeric latte or like a CBD soda or something like that, that I normally wouldn't want to spend the money on. And so it was more of like a replacement method of a previous reward. So I still felt like I was getting something good and beneficial by not doing what I was just doing. Is that an example of that technique? Yeah. So it's slightly different, but it's a great example of like a replacement habit, which can be a very effective way to curtail, you know, a a negative or bad behavior. And anytime that you can find a more healthy option, your example is maybe a little more sexy and interesting to people. But like my (laughs) example here is I used to eat, we used to, we used to get these chocolate bars and we'd keep them in the pantry in the kitchen and I loved them. I thought they were great. So I would like, you could break them into little squares, but basically every time I walked in there, I would take one or two. And so, you know, I'd end up eating like eight or 12 squares of chocolate a day. Same. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it ends up being like, okay, this is probably more than what you want. So instead I found these protein bars, which sound kind of gross as they're called pure protein, but actually they're very chocolatey. Uh, and so they're, they're really tasty to me. And the macro profile, the proteins, carbs, and fats on them is way, way, way healthier than eating a chocolate bar. And so I swapped getting the chocolate bar for buying those protein bars. And so I would still get the chocolatey taste that I wanted, but I was eating something that was much more healthy than pounding, you know, 12 squares of chocolate a day. So when it comes to breaking a bad habit, you had mentioned earlier in this interview that most of it is just creating the inverse of the other tips. So make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult and make it unsatisfying. In your research, what have you found to be more difficult, building a new habit or breaking an old one? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. It doesn't really have a good answer because it depends on the complexity of the habit. You know, like, Something really simple that you want to do, like if you want to build a good habit, something simple could be like drinking a glass of water at lunch. And while building the habit of drinking a glass of water every day, that's going to be way easier than like trying to break the bad habit of quitting smoking. Or on the inverse, something you could consider a bad habit to be like I mentioned earlier, not flossing your teeth consistently. 
Well, that's going to be way easier to build than a good habit of like going for a run for 30 minutes after work every day. So the intensity and the complexity of the habit makes that comparison kind of impossible to give a, a clear answer on. But assuming that you have two habits that are of relatively equal difficulty or complexity, and you know we could debate that might even be hard to measure, but let's say that we have that, probably breaking a bad one is probably going to be harder simply for the reason that it's already automatic, that it's already the default. Now, sometimes though, you can be surprised, especially if it's not like a true addiction or something, you can be surprised by how easy it is, how simple it is to break a bad habit, how little you need to do to like remove that behavior from your life. So for example, I used to check Facebook on my phone a lot, but I just went ahead and deleted the app and I like never check it now. It which sounds so like basic, but that it was like, well, why don't you just download it again? It's like, well, I never really wanted to check it. I just did it because it was really easy. I could just tap a button. And then as soon as it had a little bit of friction where I had to wait for a minute to download the app, I was like, ah, I don't really care that much. And so that type of thing can happen a lot. Another example that's not a digital one. If I buy beer and I put it in the front of the fridge, like in the door or on a shelf that's like highly visible, I might grab one and like drink it each night at dinner just because it's there. But if I take it and I put it like in the bottom of the fridge or all the way in the back underneath stuff where I like can't really see it, it's tucked back behind there, it's out of sight, it'll sit there for like a month or two and I won't take one out. And so I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like on the one hand, I wanted it bad enough to like pull one out each night. But on the other hand, I never wanted it bad enough to even like lean down and reach and get it from the bottom shelf. And there are a lot of behaviors. Again, this is not like a solution for a true addiction or something like that. But man, there are a lot of behaviors that we do just out of convenience. And if you increase the difficulty of them, if you make them much less convenient or less obvious, then you'll find that they often fade away in a, a surprising fashion. I totally agree with that. I did a whole media, I almost said binge, media detox. And just the simple techniques, like that's why I love this app called Forest. It's basically an app that plants a tree when you have it open. And so the whole thing is the tree dies if you exit the app. And it's crazy the amount of times that I turned it over and it was just this extra cue, like, wait, I'm going to have to kill this tree if I'm going to do anything else. And it would snap me kind of out of this really robotic ritual that I had. Half the time, I didn't even know why I was picking up my phone. So, so much of this, like we started this interview about developing that awareness and how that really comes down to it. So anything that you can do to just add a little bit of interference or friction between you and that habit that you're trying to break can be so helpful. Is there anything that you had found really helpful in all of your research that we were not yet able to cover? Well, we covered a lot of ground. So just to summarize, we talked about, you know, environment design, changing the physical environment, talked about the two minute rule, making your habits as easy as possible to start, talked about the social environment and the importance of belonging and, you know, getting habits to stick by finding a community where your desired behavior is a normal behavior. We've talked about breaking bad habits and kind of inverting some of those processes. So you have like a lot to kind of work with there. One thing that we haven't discussed yet is the importance of measurement. So motivation for a habit often fades if you don't have signals of progress. If you do have a signal of progress, if you have a signal that you're making progress and moving forward, 
then you have kind of every reason in the world to continue. And what you find is that even when you're working on something pretty difficult, you know, like doing a really intense workout or working on a project for months at a time, if you have signals of progress along the way, then you kind of maintain motivation despite the fact that it's difficult. It's when measurement is slow, when it's vague, ambiguous, invisible, opaque, delayed, when measurement has those qualities, we don't have any signals of progress. And so the point that I want to make here is that when you think about your habits and you think about what you're trying to optimize for in your life, ask yourself, what is a measurement? What is a form of measurement that has the speed or the pace that I need to stay motivated? So for example, losing weight is a very common habit that people want to come and result people want to achieve. And so exercise habits and things like that, dieting are very common habits that people want to build. And often people will use the number on the scale as the measurement for that habit. But the number on the scale might not change every, you know, until every like two or three weeks. And even then it might be slow and only be a pound or two, maybe go up a pound or two, and then you go down three. Like it's, it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back. And because the measurement is so slow and it's easy to feel like you're not making progress, often motivation fades. You're like, oh, I'm putting all this work in, but I still don't see a change in my body. Why am I bothering? So instead, if you can switch the measurement and, for example, like use a habit tracker, like my dad, he likes to swim. And so each day that he goes to the pool, he gets out and his body looks basically identical from when he went in, right? There's like no significant change from the workout. But he takes out a little pocket calendar at the end of the workout and he puts an X on that day. And at the end of the month, he adds up all the X's and he compares that to the month before. And so that little habit tracker, it's a small thing, but it gives him a signal of progress in the moment. No, his body hasn't changed yet. No, he hasn't seen the long-term rewards of what he's working toward yet. But he does have some signal of progress with that little X and he's moving forward. And it doesn't have to be a habit tracker. It could be any type of measurement. But the key idea is the same. You need to have some consistent signal of progress that the pace of the measurement matches the pace of the habit that you need to do. If you need to wait too long for the measurement to arrive, then it's really easy to get demotivated or give up. That is such a great point. Back in episode 86, actually, I interviewed my friend who is an Olympian and her story was kind of intense and in how she made the Olympics basically and had these months to train and got a really severe injury and couldn't do any running at all for like, I think eight months, she ended up being almost bedridden. And so she started to track other things so that she wouldn't lose her motivation. Like it might've been arm wraps or she goes into it in detail. If anyone's interested in that, it's one of my most popular episodes, episode 86. But it's just really interesting how she used tracking and how tracking anything, whatever stats that you can, even if it's not the ideal one that you're hoping to track, can still totally keep your mind in peak shape. And that combined with visualization, she was able to almost pick up where she left off a little bit behind, obviously, but not nearly as much as if she had just given up during that time, not to mention yeah. what that would have just done to her whole goal. I think it's worth mentioning that every measurement is an approximation, right? So like, your test score is not an indication of your overall intelligence. It is an indication of how you did on that test, but it doesn't tell you everything about your intelligence. Your scale is not an overall indication of your health or your body or certainly your self-worth, although it is an indication of maybe how your weight is moving at that time. 
the quarterly earnings that a company has. It's not an overall indication of everything that's going on in that company, but it does give you some insight to it. And so the point I'm getting at here is that every measurement is an approximation. And so you just want to choose a measurement that kind of has you directionally moving on the right trajectory, that something that keeps you motivated to keep doing the thing you need to do that ultimately serves you. So in the case of your friend, yeah, you know, she couldn't do a lot of the things that she normally did, but she found a new form of measurement that was still directionally accurate, uh, that was still an accurate approximation and got her moving in the right direction and, you know, doing the things that she needed to do to, to bounce back. So in that sense, I think we should always view measurement as a tool and not a target or as a tool and not an indication of your self-worth or the overall goal or whether even whether you're succeeding or failing, although it can give you insights or give you another data point to possibly determine if you're succeeding or failing. But it should not probably be the ultimate end thing. Well, thank you so much for not only coming on the show, but also just for all the research around habits. Like I said, that book has been really pivotal in my life and just in how I've been able to take more control over the habits I want to break and the habits I want to build. So for listeners who are also resonating with you, where is the best place for them to connect with you online? Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can check it out at atomichabits.com. And then you can find all of my work at jamesclear.com. And if you click on articles, you can sort of see they're organized by category and you can dive into whatever's interesting to you. And then probably the most popular thing on the website is my email newsletter. So that goes out weekly and there's a link to that in the navigation as well. So atomichabits.com for the book and jamesclear.com for pretty much everything else. So if you want to grab a copy of Atomic Habits for yourself or visit James Clear's website, go to mindlove.com slash 109. I've got all the links conveniently right there for you. Plus, if you purchase a book by clicking through the link from the MindLove website, you actually help support the show. So it's a win-win for both of us. Just to recap on a few things, like I said, I am a creature of habit, and there's definitely a dark side to this. I know we all joke about our bad habits and whatnot, and some of them seem meaningless or insignificant, but I got to a point in my life where I was so overwrought with all of my bad habits that I felt like I had totally lost freedom in my life. I felt like I was just destined to do these things that were totally self-sabotaging to me. Even something as simple as nail biting, I was so ashamed to show my hands. It's something I still have to work on today, but I'm so much better at it than I used to be. I used to bite my nails down to the nail bed and they were hideous and they hurt, especially for some reason whenever I would do laundry. I'd be like trying to grab the laundry out of the washer and something about that was so painful on my super short, super ugly nails. So habits are this thing that can just overtake your life. You realize you've been doing the same thing over and over again, and you've been digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole. You don't feel like you have control over your next action because it's predestined for you. It's pretty terrible. So figuring out how you can identify the habits that you want to break at first can feel a little intimidating because it can be really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm here to tell you that there is one. And not only that, you can actually start to build habits that attribute to the best version of you, to your success, to your dreams. And that's where the magic really happens. Suddenly you realize, wow, I just consistently do the things that I used to wish I did. 
things that used to be a pipe dream. And now I'm building a new version of me. I'm building the life that I really love. So this is something that's so important to not only understand, but master. So I'd love to hear what habits are you currently working on? What's really a struggle for you? Where do you still need help? Connect with me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa and let me know. And I'll see if I can throw some tips your way. Also, to reiterate my ask from the beginning of this episode, it's something that I'm working on. I've never been really great at asking for things that I want or need or things that would benefit me. So, like I said before, it would mean so much to me if you left a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app. Those reviews help the show climb in the charts. They help other people understand what the podcast is about and how it can possibly help them. And... Honestly, I just really love reading them. Every time I get a new review, I feel like I'm glowing inside and it makes all the hard work so worth it. So I love each and every one of you. I hope you're being easy on yourself this holiday season. Remembering self-care comes first, even before all the presents. And as always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.